Our Father in heaven, um, we are thankful that you have spoken, that you have given us light in the dark, uh, that we might understand uh, all that goes on, uh, not only in our world, but in our own hearts, and that we might see what it is that you have done in response. Father, we pray that we would see your love for us this morning. And that we would be spurred on uh, to love you, to love others, and to press on in good deeds. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, broadly speaking, um, what do you think the biggest problem is for the Christian church uh, at the moment? Uh, or its biggest challenge, perhaps. Um, maybe we'll think about. Maybe we, th- we most easily think about that in terms of the Western Church, um, because that's what we know best. That's where uh, most of us uh, live. I wonder what you think it is. The biggest problem is it just too inward-looking, perhaps, um, too worldly. Uh, it's, it's all actually about our comfort rather than as we sang, for the praise of God's glory. Uh, Maybe it's that we don't take the scriptures seriously enough uh, in the West. Um, Maybe we're just too individualistic, and so we we function really badly as one corporate body of people in this locality. Um, I've got written down here, it's leaders, which is always a risk, Uh, that might be the problem well I think Malachi has uh, his own particular answer uh, to this question Malachi is God's messenger to God's people originally of course that was to Old Testament Israel Um, but like all of the Old Testament that is now God's word to us in our day the New Testament tells us to expect to be made wise to see salvation in Christ Jesus through the Old Testament scriptures so the New Testament expects us to find salvation in Christ through the Old Testament and it expects us, the New Testament expects us to be be trained in behaviour that pleases God through the Old Testament. And the New Testament expects us to be warned by some of the things that we find there. If you're following the outline, we're already on the second point. The last Old Testament prophet looking back and looking forward. So Malachi sits right at the end of the Old Testament era. After the end of everything else that we read about in the Old Testament. We're in the 600 BCs, uh, if that means anything to you around there. Uh, And as he gives his particular answer to what is the biggest problem for Christian church or God's people. um, He has that that, that span of the whole Old Testament available to him to help him answer that question. And you'll see, he goes right back as far as Jacob. 
It's the first book of the Bible in the way that he answers this question. So he's got a great vantage point to help us know what the answer to this question is. But as all the prophets, not only is he able to look back um, over what God has done, but he's also looking forward in this book towards a better time when God's reign will come. And uh, repeatedly as we go through the book, we will see uh, God saying, I will send, I will send, I'll send my messenger. Suddenly the Lord will come. Surely the day is coming. So this last of the Old Testament prophets uh, looks back over the whole history of the people of God before, uh, uh, prior to him and looks forward to that better day. And as he looks at all this that's happened in the history of God's people and how he looks at the people of his own day, when he does that, um, he gives us three, he talks about this uh, understanding of God's love for them. Three reasons. We question how God has loved us in Christ. That's where the book starts. I have loved you, says the Lord. A decisive commitment from the Lord saying to his people, this is written to us, I have loved you. God says. And the people say, how have you loved us? Have you ever wondered if God really does love you? Have you ever been pretty sure that he doesn't I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? How do we we get to such a place where God might say, I have loved you? But for whatever reason it is, we say, but but how have you loved us? Well, I think there's three reasons um, here in the book of Malachi that is given. The first is that we doubt Uh, his love we doubt his deeds and his words what God has done and what he said Uh, we forget what God has done and what he said so if you think of the whole Old Testament which is before Malachi right back to Jacob if you know the story it's that decisive commitment of God to Jacob Jacob I have loved it's different for Esau as we will see, Jacob's twin. And then as you trace through that story, you see that there was a great famine where Jacob and his family were living, and then through the whole story of Joseph, they're saved. Uh, But it leaves them in Egypt, where they find themselves in slavery, and so God acts uh, amazingly through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea and rescues his people from slavery. He leads them through the wilderness into the land 
When they're faced by enemies, he provides leaders and kings to deliver them. He grants them a temple where his name uh, dwells, his presence amongst them, and his rule. He grants them prophets so that they hear what he has to say. And when they're exiled, he brings them back from exile. This is all before Malachi. Malachi sees all this. And he knows that God has spoken about it all the way along. Through all those books of the Old Testament. How have you loved us? God says, look at what I've done and look at what, look at what I've said about it. But for us, there's even more to see, isn't there? God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. How has God loved us? In his deeds and his words. I have loved you, says the Lord. At one really basic level, To think that God has not loved you is simply not to believe what he says. I have loved you, says the Lord. So that's the first reason we might question how God has loved us. We forget his deeds and his words. But secondly, because we might measure love in the wrong way. If you measure how uh, much God loves you by how you feel, then you will inevitably doubt his love for you from time to time. If you measure it by whether he's met your needs as you see them, you will inevitably doubt his love from time to time. Uh, If you measure his love... uh, um, by how he satisfies your desires or by comparing yourself to others and the things that they have and you don't and so on. If we measure how much God loves us that way, uh, our hearts will always want more than we think we've got from God. We'll want to feel better. We'll want more needs met. We'll want our desires more satisfied. And we'll want to be, do well on the comparison with others as to how much God loves us. That's another reason that we might say, I've loved you. How have you loved us? Because we're measuring it wrong. We're measuring it wrongly. What about his deeds? And his words. Um, So if we've listened to John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. If we've listened to that verse. Then we see in Jesus Christ. The great proof. Of God's love for us. It's not really sentimental. It's not really emotional. It's objective 
matter of fact, a decisive, committed love. He gave his son for us. And when we understand that verse in the gospel in the New Testament, we see that we have not been treated as our sins deserve. We've been given an undeserved favour from God, undeserved mercy. But Christ's death was what paid for our sins. And we started the service with Ephesians chapter 1. And that song, which was clearly... uh, from Ephesians chapter 1 that from before the creation of the world God had chosen us in Christ through redemption the forgiveness of sins to the gift of the spirit which is the the guaranteed deposit of our future inheritance so from start to finish from everlasting to everlasting the Lord's love is with us that's what Ephesians 1 celebrates that decisive, decided, deliberate commitment to save you in Christ. And we can invite anyone who wants to, to join in knowing this love of God too. He will never turn them away, anyone who turns back to him. But he has loved you. And if you measure it right and look at what he's done, and hear what he has said, you'll never be able to turn around to him and say, how have you loved us? The antidote that Malachi gives is to consider the alternative to God's love in Christ. And so he uses Esau. There's nothing exceptionally evil about Esau. But it's the one who is not loved. I've loved Jacob. What does it look like not to be in that love? But Esau I've hated. Well, there's no inheritance there. I've turned from his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. There's no future. Edom, which is the nation that comes from Esau... Though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. They may build, but I will demolish. No inheritance, no future. They do get what they deserve, a people always under the wrath of God. And instead of a promised land, a wicked land. No forgiveness of sins, no fellowship in the spirit, no walking to our inheritance in bonds of love and peace together as Christ's people. No light in the darkness, no hope for the world, no saving message for others to take to them. God will be glorified in his justice. And Malachi says... Think then about the alternative to God's love in Christ. And then say, how have you loved us? Because that's where we all deserve to be. 
But God in his goodness has simply said, I will love you. There's a third reason why we question how God has loved us in Christ. And that's because we like avoiding wholehearted commitments to him. This is the third reason. If we really knew, if we really grasped how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3, if we really grasped that, then we would know that there is only one worthy response to that undeserved, free, everlasting love which he gives to us. And that would be to love the Lord our God with our whole um, heart, mind, soul and strength. We know that deep down. That if someone has loved me like this, what am I to do? Just sort of spurn it? No. We know that the only proper response is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. But we have an inbuilt natural aversion to that. That's basically what sin is. That natural aversion to love God with our whole selves. Because sin tells us that I much prefer being my own king or queen. That's much better So, for the Christian, you know, we're always fighting that self-centeredness. Isaac Watts put it this way, love so amazing, so divine from God. Demands my life, my soul, my all. We sing it, but because of sin, what should be wholehearted is very often half-hearted. And I think that's Malachi's particular answer to the question, what is the biggest problem for the Christian church? We'll see it through the book, but I think it's this half-heartedness. So it's not that people have thrown out God altogether. Obviously, the Christian church hasn't thrown out God altogether. We don't want to be too negative about God. But neither do we want to be too positive about God. The idea that our whole selves might serve him. I wonder how many of us would actually own up to that. That we don't want to throw out God completely. No, 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 we need, we need, we need something of God. But we don't, we, don't, we don't want to go too far in terms of responding to his love. So we might question his love. I've loved you, says the Lord. And I'm going to, how, how have you loved us? Because if you've loved me that much, that means I've got to serve you that much. And I have a natural aversion to that. I don't want to ditch God completely, but I don't want him to take over completely. So it's actually really convenient for sinners to be able to say, how has he loved me? Well, this comes out uh, in the 
remaining verses of the chapter, verses 6 to 14. Because in three ways, I mean, bear in mind, Malachi calls this kind of half-heartedness, despising God. There's no kind of middle road here. Um, There are three ways uh, that we might show that we are half-hearted in this way. Uh, So um, in uh, verse 6, a son honours his father and a slave his master. Uh, If I'm a father, where's the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for, for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. How do we offer defiled food on God's altar? How do we do that? Well, he's writing to the priests here. They're the people who offered the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, There were lots of different kinds of of, of sacrifices. One of them was a sacrifice of atonement, a payment for sins. And we know that Christ is the one who has made the once-for-all-time sacrifice of atonement. So nobody needs to offer any sacrifices of atonement anymore. Because Christ has done that. Now that's why it can be misleading to call people like me priests. You don't see me offering any atoning sacrifices. But you do see leaders of the church proclaiming the atoning sacrifice. That's what we now do. We don't offer the sacrifice. It's been done. We proclaim the sacrifice. So how do we offer defiled food? By not faithfully proclaiming the one sacrifice of Christ. It's usually in the things we stop saying. So we might always say that Jesus is an incredible example of self-sacrifice. We might also uh, be very happy to talk about Jesus' victory over the powers of evil. But more easily, we'll talk less about sin and we'll talk less about God's wrath. And so, in in fact, we diminish the picture of God's love to us in the cross when we do that. And if we as your leaders ever drift if you, if, you, if you ever sort of come to church uh, for, a, for any, any, well, I'd say any Sunday, um, and sin is absent, or the death of Christ is absent from the service, then you, either, you need to either, I don't know, lock us up or shoot us, because we're no use to you, and we're no, you're no use to anybody else, because we're, we'll be offering defiled food, in effect, because we won't be proclaiming the one sacrifice. And if you end up, if you're going to university or wherever you end up in future churches, what are you going to look for? You're going to look for the faithful proclamation of the sacrifice of atonement, the undefiled offering. Pray for the bishops of the Church of England that they would appoint ministers who will proclaim Christ crucified but 
<clears throat> we do offer all sorts of other sacrifices. That's one of the sacrifices, sacrifice of atonement. There's all sorts of other kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. And the New Testament picks up on these and uses, it, uses the language of these sacrifices for us. So there are six uh, I've put there. You know, we're not going to turn to any of these. Romans 12 is about offering our whole selves in view of God's mercy, in view of his love, offer our bodies and minds as living sacrifices. Our whole selves. Hebrews 13 verse 15 is about what comes from our lips. Our praise of God. What do, what do people hear coming from our mouths? What, what, what sacrifice are we making to God with our mouths? What do people hear? Do they hear him praise? Do they hear thanksgiving? Now, I don't mean you have to sing a Christian hymn in the supermarket. Okay, That's not what I mean. What's going on in your heart? What's the mood music of your speech? before God Hebrews 13 6 very next verse another kind of sacrifice this is love for other people and sharing your good deeds what do people receive from your hand now remember as we work through these things we're all doing this you know we've all got the opportunity to give our whole selves to speak well to do good But we don't want to be like, well, we don't want to ditch those things altogether. But we don't get like, go a bit go over the top with them, do we? Where's your heart in these things? Wholehearted? Or rather half-hearted? Uh, Philippians 4.18, talking about money. Uh, you'll have seen something in the email this week. A fragrant offering pleasing to God where we support the work of the gospel with the resource, some of the resources that God has given us so that people will know the love of God. We'll have our annual stewardship Sunday in January as usual. Where's our heart in that? Wholehearted? Um, Philippians 2 is about the cost of doing or being involved in gospel ministry. Paul's been persecuted and he makes that sacrifice, that cost of faithfulness. You know, what, what are we going to be willing to pay depending what the Church of England does decide? Uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 uh, and, and verse 9, these spiritual sacrifices were made into a people to make spiritual sacrifices and they're outlined there as declaring the praises of God in the world. So, uh, what a good day to have Christmas flyers. Or to hear about James's evangelistic training next week. See, in all these sacrifices, which are just normal Christian life, nothing, you know, just normal Christian life, There's always the danger of, one, of being half-hearted. Of, of not being wholly against them. No, I'll, 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 I'll do my bit. But not being wholly for them.
And then brilliantly, in verses 12 and 13, uh, moaning about doing things half-heartedly. Um, even though we're only really going at these things half-heartedly, uh, the people in Malachi's day still say, oh, it's a bit much, isn't it? So, but you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. It's half-hearted sacrifices. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. And even in verse 14, we know how to say that we'll be wholehearted, even when we're half-hearted. Verse 14, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. I'll be wholehearted, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord instead. God says to the Christian church, if that's how we're going to proceed, in this sort of half-hearted way, God says, I'd rather you didn't bother. Now that might sound shocking, but that's what it says, okay? I'll take you to the verse. Just let that sink in. He says, I'd rather you didn't bother. I mean, you could try it at work, verse 8. Uh, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame and, or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? You know, you could try it. You know, when you're doing homework this week, just you know, just do a little bit. Don't don't bother doing it properly. Or if you're in the office, oh, yeah, I can get away with that. Try offering them to your governor. What about offering them to the great king? Look what God says, verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. Others will come in. Did you pick that up in the passage? Three times, verse uh, 5. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Out in the world. Or verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. Everywhere. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And again, verse 14, I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. We see that worked out a bit in the New Testament, where the Jewish nation rejects Jesus, and so the gospel bursts out to the nations. That's the choice that lies before us, really. Uh, we were thinking about the Western Church, and we may well say that the Western Church is wholly half-hearted. But the gospel is gloriously prospering from where the sun rises to where it sets. If you look at what's happening in Africa and South America, 
and so on. We see it works out. So our choice is, well, will we just close the temple doors? You know, God will close the, close the doors on us. We'll just lose God. And the gospel will prosper elsewhere. Or will we come back and know when God says, I have loved you. I have loved you. I want to name you all and point at you all. But when we give the bread and wine, that's what we're saying, isn't it? You know, take and eat this and remember that Christ died for you. And feed on him in your heart by, by faith with thanksgiving. I have loved you, says the Lord. God is the great king, the Lord, who loves, saves, and speaks fully and completely in Jesus Christ. And it's better than you could have imagined because not only does he forgive our sins, but even in our half-heartedness, he still clothes us with his righteousness. So what we do is pleasing to God in the end. I could do another half an hour on that if you want, but I won't. He grants us his spirit to renew our hearts, that we might become more and more wholehearted in Christ as we serve. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray with the Apostle Paul that you would give us power to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is your love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, that by the power of your Spirit, seeing that love more and more clearly, through what you have done in the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection, by the gift of his Spirit, by the promise of the inheritance, Father, as we grasp that more and more, we pray that you would make us more and more wholehearted. Our whole selves for you. The speech of our mouth, the work of our hands. How we divide up our money. The willingness to suffer for Christ. The spiritual sacrifices of declaring your praises to others Father make us more and more wholehearted to the praise and glory of your name Amen